Welcome everyone to the Deep Dive, the podcast that skips small talk and goes straight for the concepts that shape our thinking and behavior. In this podcast, cold expertise is defenestrated as warm philosophy is enthroned in an attempt to explore the field in which we're all scientists looking for answers, living well. Hello world, welcome to another episode of the Deep Dive with Eyal Shai. I'm joined today by Rick Benger. Hey Rick. Eyal, how are you? Nice Good. to be here. Thank you, I'm doing very well. And I think we'd all like to know what you're going to talk to me about today. Uh, so I was about 24, I was in Chile. Um, in Santiago, this was the start of a roughly six months backpacking trip with a very good friend of mine. And that's when I met the most negative man in the world that I had <laughs> met up until that point in my life. Uh, and you know how it is when you're traveling, you're sort of out of your context. And so things uh, stand out. Uh, in a way that they might not when you're in your own conditioning and around your own friends and family. And so, uh, yeah, this, this, the story of this man has stuck with me. So imagine, imagine we're there. We're going on a little day tour of some local farms and vineyards. We're in this vineyard. The sun is setting. There's this beautiful American woman who has been hitting on him all day. And he's been... Uh, you know, non-receptive, let's say. And I could tell that the woman was walking a little bit slower than the rest of us to hold him back from the group, right? There's eight of us there. We're tasting wine with the local guide hearing about the area. Uh, and I hear her say to him, aren't you going to kiss me? And I heard his reply was, but you're so pretty, these things don't happen to me. And It just struck me then, you know, this fact that the stories we tell ourselves determine our reality, uh, the extent to which uh, the model we have in our head, um, you know, drives us, uh, governs how we interact with people, as opposed to what's actually going on. And so here he was uh, in this perfect scenario, the thing that he wanted, which was this chance meeting a beautiful woman. traveling I imagine this was part of his reason for, for getting out of England uh, for a trip uh, and the reality is there and he he negates it he goes with with the story in his head um, yeah I was really jealous of him up until the the punchline of the story <laughs> right I mean it, picture perfect kind of moment right and yeah she's taken the initiative she's been uh, patient with him all day as he's been Uh, non-responsive in fact we got back to the hostel and I mean she tried to, through dinner after dinner sitting at the bar and he would just go on with this this sob story um, and uh, yeah I mean he was very heavily affected of course by this negative story and perception of his life and how it was going but she lasted till about 10 p.m before she excused herself and went to bed and I recall 
Uh, I lasted till about midnight, uh, listening and talking. And my best friend stayed up with him until three. Uh, and I, I recall just the next day, my best friend and I were both very moved by this experience. Like, wow, like that guy's really stuck, really stuck with this story. Was, this was your friend idea. directly directly talking with him about this incident you think like about the day uh i talked to i don't know if my friend heard the incident i i definitely mentioned it to him um but the conversation that we were having with this with this gent back at the hostel was you know his, his life wasn't going the way he wanted and he felt things were too late he was stuck in a job he um his love life wasn't sort of there and I, I, to be honest, I can't recall how, how suggestive we were that, hey, guy, this woman's like right here. <laughs> she's ready to break this, like, she's going to break the spell for you. It's, right. It's, it's, uh, yeah, but it was deeply affecting. Um, and I, I think about it often. It's one of those stories that comes back to me as just a, a very distinct reminder um you know the extent to which we're stories telling stories i think i've forgotten who that was was that pessoa i'm not sure it if might it was pessoa i don't know him well enough i just know of him and, and of him being an interesting person but i don't know uh, enough about him yeah so that's that wasn't certainly a very um poignant prompt for you to to come to this realization and what where did you go with it i mean what were the where did it get you in terms of the direction in which you were thinking and examining the extent to which we use stories in our life for for better or for worse uh well at the time um you know one of the reasons we travel is to have these stories shaken up right we, we see novelty, different people uh, approaching life in a different way, a contrast with other cultures, and you can't help but sort of re-examine uh, how you make sense of the world. And so part of the backpacking experience was, was very much uh, a wanting to, to shake up my own stories. Um, I do recall, uh, well, just not wanting to be that guy in, in a sympathetic way, like, uh, and I remember moments on that trip where I felt, you know, if I'm not able to sort of be happy with myself now, or if I'm not able to make peace with uh, myself now, uh, then when, right? Um, so that was that was sort of the experience while I was traveling and, and the direct aspect of it. Um, since then, I think it's just... I, you know, I'm naturally introspective and I think about this sort of stuff all the time. Uh, I'm also aware that, you know, I have a bipolar mood profile and I can experience days where I know the story that I'm telling myself is A, not true. Uh, well, just not true, <laughs> like not true on that day and not true on the other days in the past 10 years that that's been the story in my head uh, and yet separating sort of belief from 
uh, the feeling that it's true, from the thinking that it's true, from the projection into the future as if it were true. Um, yeah, this, ha this has happened to be, you know, a fairly consistent thread or theme through, through my life. And uh, flipping it to the positive side, I, I write fiction, I love story and narrative, uh, and I spend my time in that area, sort of constructing stories and, and sharing stories with people. So it, at the time, uh, I certainly didn't know it would become as central a, uh, a thought or a theme in, in how I approach life and, and want to live a good life. Uh, but yeah, it is, uh, that is a central, central sort of tenet uh, or experience for me is this distinction between uh, stories, thought, belief, experience, values, and the mismatches that you get and, and the alignment that we want, right? Right, right. Um, so the first thing that came to my mind is how we don't today, I, I'm not spending any time pondering the the metaphor for a psychedelic trip but it really comes from actually being on a trip somewhere else like changing your surroundings um seeing seeing something different and it's just something that popped in my mind that yeah you know um the original way to somehow change your awareness and consciousness and bring bring in new content for examination and introspection was to actually change your surroundings um having nothing to do with uh, ingesting anything. So, so that's interesting. And I think that's very true what you're saying about going somewhere and giving, giving a chance for things to actually appear um, in, in different ways so that you can change your set ways. And maybe, and I like also the metaphor of, of shaking the snow globe. I saw it, yeah. I think in, in Michael Pollan's book about psychedelics, but it's, it's like shaking the snow globe, basically. So taking uh, some part of your reality and kind of giving it a shake and see what how things are going to settle down in, in a new configuration. And I think that is, that is a good reason to, to go out there and to look for new narratives. And the second thing which, which I found interesting you said is that storytelling is, is powerful in the way... Storytelling is powerful because we have emotions, we have all these things that are almost like problems in the sense that if a problem is when your prediction isn't correct. And I think we then immediately go to storytelling, like trying to, to find the narrative that actually makes it um, coherent, all of it. And when there's a mismatch sometimes between our feelings and what's around us, um, it is amazing to see how the story somehow has more authority than our rational mind, because a rational mind can say, look, something here is not exactly right. Like I can see around me that everything is quite ordinary and, and in its right place, maybe. Um, maybe I shouldn't feel insecure right now, but I do. So what does it mean? And then we, we rush in our minds to construct a story, right? And it's very interesting that this story many times trumps the other um, interpretation, like logical interpretation. So I'm really interested to hear from you if, 
if that's something you've noticed, if that's what you were, if that's what you meant. And if so, if you've ever thought about the nature of this, why do we tend to go for this fantastical narrative sometimes and not so much trust or uh, like rational thought that, that feels almost foreign to us? Yeah, I um, I'll touch on the first one just briefly uh, with travel in that I know you have experience sort of welcoming people to Israel and seeing tourists in different modes. And so um, I'm really curious on that front, kind of if there's any difference between the people who come to a new circumstance or situation and are, have their eyes open, right? versus those who come and are upset that the food isn't the same as back home. Like I've always found this a fascinating difference. Um, on, on stories and level of stories, yeah, I think the way I, I see it is that we have mood at, let's say, the core level, multivariate but largely uh, driven by uh, environment and biological factors, so sleep, diet, exercise, and then whatever uh, biochemical dance is happening in any individual's head. So we have a mood as a kind of baseline. Then we have the level of feeling. Then we have the level of story. And then we have the level of conscious thought or, or rational thought. And I, I, I think of it as the core is more powerful than the outer layers. So... Our experience of this, I would say, well, to the to the direction you were going, we will feel a strong emotion. And without necessarily knowing that we're feeling it or why we're feeling it, that emotion will be associated with story before it is associated with thought. It moves one layer out. And so the, the stories have the power because they are close to that emotion. They are closer to... Uh, the chain of memories, previous experiences, um, uh, and let's say the subconscious modeling of the world. And so the reason they're compelling is because they're shortcuts. You know, our brains are uh, our misers, let's say, I think is the expression in that we, our brains don't want to do as much work as is required to make sense of the world. And so we have our assumptions, biases, shortcuts, stories, uh, maps. I think story happens at the level of this, the existing model in the map, plus, you know, emotion or feeling is the impetus often. Uh, and I think that's why a situation can arise in which the emotion feels coherent with a bunch of other situations that you've had in your past and they all seem to fit together. And I think that's because what happens is the, the memory and the emotion happens first and makes them feel the same. And then the mind catches up or the thought catches up and says, ah, these are all the same. And then you get the level of inspection, which says, hang on, they're not actually the same. But that's roughly, that's roughly how I think about this. Of course, things happen in both directions. You get feedback loops and the whole thing, but um i do think feeling comes first and and story is is the step after feeling uh before thought yeah i think that makes perfect sense because the feeling is that if any sort of narrative has to override 
the other it's the it's the rational thought that has to override the story not vice versa and that makes sense i'm also thinking about the storytelling uh, faculty do you think it's in any way connected to to the ego is like more strongly rooted in the ego because what i find about myself and other people i know is that the stories we tell often serve if they serve anything it's not really us so much as as a whole but this part of us that usually is referred to as as the ego because i think a lot of these stories even if they are horrible and like they make us miss the the beautiful thing that's standing right in front of us and, and says kiss me but they also serve the ego in the sense is like you feel you get the feeling that yes you know yourself you're like somehow you're somehow okay right. yeah. um you know it's not challenging they're not there to really challenge us to challenge our ego and in that sense they're they're comforting i think yes. and it's interesting for me to think yeah if, if that sits there and and does something similar i think absolutely uh whether it's ego or identity i suppose i suppose i think about that as the same thing as effectively well let's define what the personal story is by what the outcome is which you explained um really nicely is it gives us a sense of coherence that we are a stable unit that it makes sense we're a real thing right in all of this chaos and change and uh that feels uh let's say safe or it feels at least necessary we spend so much time trying to make ourselves fixed and make ourselves you know coherent so i think absolutely like with this case of kiss me it's Uh, how scary would it be if suddenly I wasn't the person that I've told myself I am and I was all of a sudden operating without my comforting model of things and where I fit within the world I think that's absolutely absolutely right yeah and we do that in so I think we do that in so many ways that we're not aware of We have such a tendency to define ourselves by our preferences, by our personality, by our Maya Briggs. You know, there's this, there's this need for a, a coherent and logical story about who we are. It seems to me that, you know, the reason the original uh, way in which the, the ego or I, our identity, like even appeared is probably just our pattern recognition ability right and looking into things in the world and we notice patterns and then just because we we are able to to have reflexive thoughts then that eventually goes to the place of like oh looking at this body and and the actions that it's taken in the past and the predictions of what it's going to do and we create this image of something that's stable and i'm wondering if at, in times of danger in times when especially if you're someone who isn't really certain that the world is a safe place that you don't really feel at home in the world if that even gets um, either strengthened or exacerbated if we're going to look at it negatively but where you stick even more to like the one thing you think you know that isn't changing yeah um, and i say this because 
with me, I noticed that the more I feel comfortable in the world and with trying new things and accepting and embracing change and living life as if it were a dance, not, not, some, uh, not some task with rules that has to be done, then I see more of it going away, more of all these ideas about who I am and I'm just there and I'm, I realize that I'm more a process, more a verb than a noun, right? Right, um, yeah. And I just want to know if, if you feel like there's something there on the intersection between uh, safety in the world and, and not feeling safe. Uh, absolutely. I, f- I feel a similar way. I... Well, it is vulnerable to be doing things in public that you don't know how to do. Um, it is vulnerable to sort of live without labels. And uh, I feel that very much. I mean, I've started sharing a little bit more of my work in public. And for a while, I was just toiling away as on my solo path, sort of not wanting it to be in the sunshine yet until it was complete and beautiful and this whole thing. Um, it is this, this aspect you spoke about individually about needing to feel safe and defined. I think there's a social aspect to it as well. Like identity does serve a purpose within a tribal context. It's good to know who's really good at throwing a spear and who's great with language and can tell the stories to pass on to the kids about how to, how to treat each other. Um, so I, I think that being drawn towards an identity or a role that is fixed within a social context um, makes a lot of sense. Uh, and so I, I get that it's uncomfortable to be outside of that. But um, on a personal level, I, I do find it, I do find it very difficult. And I think even in going off sort of a traditional career path and being someone who does take sort of risk and experiments with things, Despite that, I think the feeling I've carried with a lot of it is that it is um, it is a digression almost, or it's a, yeah, it, it is something in want of a label still, even though it's intentionally breaking the, or taking off the labels. Yeah. Yeah, to me, it's, it's very interesting to look at, at what we call identity. And like you say, it's no coincidence that you, mentioned somebody at the tribe who's good at this or good at that or looks a certain way. So I've been trying to think about all the things that kind of make us up as a, as a person. And, you know, obviously it starts with something as, as basic and easily sensed as the color of our skin or the length of our hair or the color of our eyes or something like that. And then you can kind of see it move into the into other things. So then you look at, for example, uh, if if a person is described by their emotions or defined by their emotions that they usually feel. So then you start saying you're like, oh, this this person is um, is cantankerous or this person is very jovial. These type of things. And then it can also be the type of activity that I like to engage in. So like you said, it's like he's a natural born hunter. He just enjoys it so much. And for me, when I started in my life to try and move from this, these type of labels, 
So of course, uh, the type like the, the skin color thing and that, of course, I wish that was like a, a thing that's long in the past. We know that there are still people who base their opinions of people based on that. Um, but a lot of people still base their opinions of other people like based on their prevalent emotions or, yeah. or favorite activities or something like that. And I'm seeing a need maybe to go even a level deeper. And I've been trying to become a person who's defined. If you, look, if you looked for it, like you would be able to tell um, that the person who I'd like to be is motivated by doing good. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that it's such an ab- abstract thing to do good and, and to do well, um, to be good to other people. But it's an abstract thing on such a level that actually the actual actions taken, if you looked at them and did not understand the good yourself, um, it would be hard for you to, to make out who I am, actually, because I would have a, a large repertoire of, of things that I could do because um, the tools that you can use to achieve good ends is endless and sometimes it is right to lie and sometimes it is right to do other things so you couldn't be judging me according to things like oh is he truthful or for the most part i will be but i'm just saying every tool has its um correct use at the correct time like fitting use yeah i just wonder if you have if you can comment on that like is it something that you've noticed on other people like people that you've had a hard time pinning down to like a narrative that you constructed for them or uh well my first reaction is that in becoming better friends with someone the interesting thing is how they differ from the model that you had in mind right you meet someone and they are an accountant and we have particular ideas about accountants and again this is this shortcutting and making sense and actually being able to pass all the information in the world right so we we meet them they're an accountant uh, we learn that they love base jumping and heroin and that doesn't fit together and that's interesting i've chosen an extreme example of course but i i see this there's a mismatch between I think what we actually want from other people that we get close to and what we accept, and that's imperfection and complexity and contradiction and what we want for ourselves in the eyes of others. We, we feel drawn to, to the label so that other people can understand us, so that they get who we are. Uh, in the context of what you're trying online and, and the working in public thing, there's this question around, do I want to be the deep dive guy or do I, am I happy to live with the contradictions and the multiple things and it'll come to the surface that I'm trying to do good things in the world when someone puts together enough pieces. So yeah, the, the central question for me is who is the label for like, and is it really for me? Do I really need it? Or do I need it because I think other people will judge that favorably and I want to be, I want to, yeah, I want to be judged in their eyes favorably in a certain way. Right. I mean, what, yeah, well, it's just interesting me, interesting for me to, to hear more about that 
from you like have you noticed at any point that you were kind of chasing a label that you then decided was just a label that you didn't actually need um oh yeah oh yeah so and this is one that i hadn't realized how deeply tied to the idea i was so at a certain point uh in my kind of work i decided to put fiction first was the way i put it to myself so i knew that that was like uh as central to let's say as close to a calling or a core action that i enjoyed uh something that i felt i was pretty good at i could imagine doing it for the rest of my life and enjoying it and finding it enriching and getting better so i made this decision for a while okay i'm putting fiction first there's no other work it's just writing short stories it's just like learning the craft um fine but i also needed or adopted the label of successful writer right like i was happy to do the work and not be a, not be successful and be just tinkering away and doing that by myself but actually i was carrying ideas around you know a writer to be any good has to do 40 hours a week of writing and put it first a writer works alone and uh completes their work and then publishing is a secondary thing so i i actually did hold this label for a while um that you know someone writing modern literature uh, in novel form that's what they do they don't do other stuff they don't tweet silly stuff or paint or also write sketch comedy or you know uh so i did have a very fixed idea both of like what that label meant as well as a need to one day have the new yorker accept the story and it is really it's really interesting to reflect on because like i was saying before i think we sort of we have the rational mind telling us one story or we have in my case i was telling myself the story that i didn't need those things and i mostly believed that and now only in retrospect do i realize actually there was quite a need for that identity that um i had along the way uh, yeah so that's that's my personal experience of it of it recently yeah i i can sympathize i tried my hand at writing over a year ago when the coronavirus just hit and i was going to be a writer because i was obviously not a painter not a dancer not a and writing at least involves uh, words which are ordinary things usually i mean never mind that you actually need a ton of talent but i was doing that and i started researching before that i had never actually um put my mind to actually doing it and having the goal of really producing something wholesome and i tried researching and i signed up to master class to look at these like top class writers and what they're saying and actually that was a good experience because if you go on there you realize that there's absolutely no thread running through all these amazing writers they all yeah. do things so differently 
No, um, exactly. But but at the same time, it's like, of course, I think it was, for example, so easy for somebody in the 20th century, like any young man to aspire to be Ernest Hemingway, right? Because in addition to his amazing writing, he has this lifestyle that's really socially, more than socially acceptable, this like aloof man who's just self-sufficient um, and still shows emotion somehow. And it's very appealing. And I think it's natural for any of us to, when we get started at doing something, is like adopt some sort of persona. If we don't pay attention to it, we'll just immediately somehow pick it up. And I noticed it when I went online and I started seeing a lot of advertising for writing courses and a lot of very on-point tweets that really kind of hit me in the, in the in the right way at the time they were very appealing and it's like all these writing tips and all that and I considered taking like some writing course that was offered and then I interestingly I realized at some point that first of all after a while I felt like I'm not a writer after all and second of all I noticed that a lot of the things out there that kind of advertise and and advertisement literally means like turning of the soul right so it's things that make you turn your soul towards them and focus your attention and i noticed that many of these advertisements maybe all advertisement is not appealing to to you to the person who's doing the work and enjoying it and not worrying about any sort of material success that comes along with it they're appealing directly to some archetypal ego yeah. that many people share yeah. And they all come across this and that's why it's popular because if you actually said something that was directed at a specific person, it's not going to be popular. It's going to, to fit that person that you know well, right? And anything that is popular, I feel like on some level tricks you into thinking that it's, it's actually addressing you when it's addressing uh, a narrative that you have about yourself, which I found interesting. Yeah, I mean, a hundred percent in terms of how ads work, they appeal to an archetype, an identity, uh, an ideal uh, that is very ego-driven. In regards to writing, it's a really interesting example. It makes me think that the part of you that wants to uh, interpret the world find an expression for it, experience the making of that expression and then sharing it with the world, let's call that the creative impulse, is entirely divorced from the part of you that wants to be published and recognised and loved uh, for it. Um, similarly, in learning, let's say in learning to write, I mean, I've become much softer in my attitude to, to why we take courses and we pay attention to what pen Neil Gaiman uses, right? It's because this is how we learn. We imitate. If you were learning golf, you would be doing the same thing. You would be seeking tips, uh, watching someone swing and see how they do it. You're picking it up bit by bit, comparing it to how you feel and calibrating. And so I have a, a lot of uh, sympathy for that. And I don't think that's any indication that someone of someone's talent or non-talent. I think that's how you come to writing when you've made the conscious decision that you're going to feel, have more of it in your life, let's say. Um, so that's on one side, there's this 
learning of something as a craft as opposed to the voice it's often called and finding your voice so that's one thing that comes to mind then the other one is this this creative impulse and this voice being a very different process to the identity needing voice, identity need let's say what i'd like to ask you is first of all like going back to what you told that you actually found something that was just fun for you to do mm -hmm. and that you enjoyed and now you're saying it's actually a divorce which i i think i think so too um did you manage to drop drop that other more ego driven um attempt at like being a certain way and just go back to basics and just do what you enjoy um, I'm, is that I'm how you found closer. that they're divorced yeah i think in my case um you know i grew up in a very lucky situation with a fantastic education very supportive environment i think the message from my surrounds was that uh, art was not a serious career and i think i adopted that and so coming out of high school and into university i think it was a complete dismissal of of anything related to writing or to a creative pursuit um i see that as grossly unfortunate not uncommon but for me grossly unfortunate and so i think i had just defined it away as non-work and therefore non-serious and then for something that wasn't important for me to pursue um and so in my case it was a unlearning of all of that a coming back to it a finding the joy in it when i first started writing more the voice was there i was connected with it it was great as soon as i said okay i'm taking this seriously for six months the voice suffered i got better at the craft and the learned bits but what was distinct about my expression was very much uh let's say suppressed or kind of i couldn't get in touch with it and i think over a lot of time um years maybe you know the past eight years uh, i've been shaking that sort of aspect of identity and idea about what good writing is and all of the technique that i've learned and i'm getting closer to that unconscious uh, very direct from the voice writing so this is good news you know the stories about it being too late about i should have done this earlier about i wish i had learned the lessons i'd learned when i was 20 uh they're soft at the moment they can get very loud but at the moment they're soft and so uh, pandemic burnout aside um busyness as a publisher aside i feel very positive that i've got my best writing ahead of me and there you go i used the word best let's put it differently i've got the most enjoyable uh <laughs> let's say purest uh purest work ahead yeah yeah that's that's really good news and it makes me so happy to hear that and again i sympathize just going back to the concept you mentioned of unlearning that it definitely takes unlearning and that's yeah I mean, I'm not the first to say this, but unlearning is much harder than learning, right? Especially, I mean, even if it is a type of learning, the unlearning, then it's it's harder to learn when we already have this 
gelled identity that's that's kind of been with us for a while and now you have to go back and I was the same way like nobody has ever told me that it was a legitimate course of action to pursue artistic endeavors of any kind and when I wanted to drop out of school it was like okay you can drop out of school but then you have to work at the local uh, sheep house with the sheep okay because you can't be just some person who's sitting around and uh, and all that and it's very tempting to to become bitter about it um, first of all um, but to do something constructive about it definitely takes unlearning and and that's that's a challenge it's a challenge I mean it, it potentially it's a lifelong challenge I mean some some things that you learn in your infancy or growing up when they become part a central part of your story uh, a central part of your identity and you mature you realize you don't have to accept them that they're not true that you can change it can still take work to not to not feel attached to that I mean we have an example let's say you know a classic is someone being labeled a talented kid or a gifted child very early and they do great at school and they're a superstar academic Uh, they get a wonderful fellowship at the age of 17 and the story is highly productive special unique different and it's very hard often for for these people um, you know some of my friends uh, to to unlearn that they're only acceptable when they're in that mode or things only have value if they're the best in the world at it or you know this is one example on on the very on on the more tragic side uh people who grow up in abusive uh, environments spend their lives having to to recraft a story and to to choose a new story for themselves yeah so i, I mean unlearning is a maybe being a lifelong unlearner should be a goal <laughs> as well as a lifelong learner Sure. And it's also interesting to note that most published writers have not peaked before their mid-30s. Some of them have not even published a book um, before their mid-30s. So any 50-something-year-old writer that you see in the door and, and admire um, for the work that they've done, and they're clearly excellent, like, I don't know, Michael Pollan comes to mind. Mm-hmm. You know, the guy didn't publish a successful book before he turned 25. And it's interesting to, to also look at like the outliers, the people that seemingly just everything was right for them to ripen way before us because they didn't have to uh-huh. unlearn things. So I'm just having two names in my mind. Well, one is famous is um, Mary Shelley, right? Which is amazing. It's like if you heard the right. first story and it's like, wow, to peak at 19 or something and write mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's wild and I really don't know how that could happen except growing up in a house that was totally supportive of of what she did not having to um, not having like an expectation to to make money because she's well off already Um, I don't know how to how to get to that level of thing and the other person I'm thinking about is not going to be known to anybody listening to the podcast but it's this Israeli comedian very, very, very famous uh, for decades now, just doing excellent comedic work. And I got to know him. Uh, I got to meet him in person like quite a few times. 
And on the screen, you see, it's like, wow, this is like this super talented guy. How does he do it? I mean, I should aspire to be like him. He seems to just naturally have it. Like he didn't have to work very hard for it. It's just natural for him to be that kind of persona. And then meeting him in real life, I was amazed to find out that it's not calculated at all. He's not funny because of any sort of rational decision but right. because he's yeah. kind of neurotic and yeah. when you meet him in person he's just like a middle school kid who's 50 years old uh, and his way of dealing with any kind of social pressure it seems is just to crack jokes and make a yeah. fool of himself and it's amazing like this disparity between seeing him on tv and that's amazing and he's such a natural talent which he is and then in real life seeing others like wait i actually Maybe I don't admire the guy or at least not that not that is embarrassing or anything like that. But I see uh -huh. that he's just this is the type of person that he is. Um, he didn't have to unlearn anything, but he also is. Um, it seems that he's all it's almost compulsory, like his funny behavior, you know? Yeah. I, uh, so it's I, really it, interesting. It is. I think. It, well, it's a combination of distinct talent uh the right environment opportunity and having the distribution and the public kind of knowledge of that person kind of happen quite early usually that'll happen because of someone in the periphery right like has noticed them has supported them and what have you uh plus like i think what you're getting at is they never fall out of that voice they never kind of drift from the natural core of expression into how it should be or how other people do it or yes do I want to be considered a contemporary artist or this or is there a niche for me or they never get to that part because uh, they have the joy of the expression the response from people around them and then um, they get to that more public so it's a, just a, a natural continuation I think um, someone who comes no, to mind right. is Joey Alexander, I don't know if you know him, but he's a jazz pianist. Um, check out some YouTube, man. Like, will do. Phenomenal talent at 11, playing with the jazz wow. greats, right? So it's never going through his head. Do I want to be this kind of pianist or that kind of pianist? Uh, how do I get, you know, do I just do something that I don't really like for exposure to start and then try and, you know, so uh, easy to be envious, um, uh, easy to be envious of that. I think we also have this fascination with people who achieve things young, right? You mentioned that a lot of writers, most writers, uh, don't have their seminal work happen before 30. Uh, actually, I think the, the median age of successful founder in Silicon Valley is older than we'd think. I think they're on their second or third startup. Mm. They're probably mid thirties. I might be hashing that, but that they're older than we think. Uh, but yet, it's the nineteen-year-old founder that we we idolize. So yes, there's something what's going about... on there. Like, why why do we why do we love that story of somebody doing something amazing at a young age or something you know extraordinary? Yeah, precautiousness definitely has an, an appeal. But there's also a flip, a flip side to, to being able to just naturally get this thing flowing 
because what I noticed about the comedian guy I was telling you about is that actually he is in a way restricted in terms of his repertoire of reactions to life happening around him because he is he is playing out a pattern and is very much identified now with this character um, which has brought him amazing success right Mm -hmm. but it also pins you down and i'm not sure that you're able to to ever break out of that and i think that puts a lot of pressure on people as well if you succeed at what you do there's an immense amount of pressure for you to keep doing the same thing and not not take a a break from it Um, I'm trying to think about it myself and being sort of wary of of actually defining myself by some one project that I'm doing yeah I my first thought well, you mentioned meeting this comedian and how it just felt like he was a kid, right? So perhaps it isn't stressful for him. Perhaps he's just, he's fused with that identity. He likes it. It works, right? Maybe he's miserable. I don't know. But a good example actually is Jim Carrey. Huge success in kind of being the persona uh, that he had through those hit movies. And more recently has spoken beautifully uh, about his recalibration of identity, uh, his spirituality and sort of exploring meaning persona. I think he's a wonderful example of where the burden of being that person started to feel not like who he was and that he was trapped by it. In your case, uh, sympathetically, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that you're not wanting to be pigeonholed is slightly this avoidant strategy. It's slightly this bit that wants to like know who you are and be secure and safe in that. Worrying about being the deep dive guy before you're the deep dive guy is a good way to stop you from doing things, right? <laughs> Probably. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of it. I mean, Let's hope I become the deep dive guy. <laughs> I highly doubt that. Um, but I find that it's it's good to look ahead to potential things and always see that anything can turn out to be good or bad. But I do have a plan to do things for a limited time and then moving on to something else. So if I also were to mention another Another person who's a good example of doing it is Tom York, right? Or and Andrade your head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, just being able to reinvent themselves each time and uh, running away as if from fire from, from doing exactly what they did the last time. And it's interesting because I know, I know for Tom York, it's been amazingly stressful to be successful in the mid-90s. And that drove him to do something completely different. And he was probably less confident and comfortable doing this different thing and Mm -hmm. still he couldn't have achieved anything else but success which is interesting you know you also then develop the label of being the guy who does a different thing each time right and so if he put out an album that was exactly the same as the one before that breaks all of our model and we're like ah this is just more of that we were expecting something totally new so it's uh there's no escaping it there's no escaping it right um, yeah i 
it's a it's a hard one i think well with plans let's say um plans are good how do i want to put this you know firm plans lightly held for example right of course we build we want to build some level of spontaneity and difference into things uh anything that's entirely static is becomes boring and i wonder how yeah, I wonder how you think about that in terms of your plans about which creative work to do first, how many times to do it before giving more time to another creative project. And of course, how that balances with experimentation, creative work, with other roles in life, you know, fatherhood, partner. Right. How do you think about that planning and, and allocation of time and spontaneity? First of all, I'm trying not to lose my priorities and set them straight and and above all is well-being and then family. Um, and I think I should clarify that what I meant by saying I'm thinking ahead is like, for example, all of us want to win the lottery, right? I mean, none of us would actually say no to being given like $3 million. Okay, great. Right. You don't actually have to, to do anything for money. You can do it for your own love or something. I think... What I meant by saying that I'm trying to think ahead is that I keep reminding myself that there are many, many, many scenarios, and this is proven by data and, and, and cases of people for whom winning the lottery was the worst thing that happened to them. Okay? Yes. So you, yes. Have to hedge, you have to hedge your, your highest hopes with, with the knowledge that what be careful what you wish for basically right it could go very wrong um and because of that it can also take some of the pressure off of of what you do um professionally artistically because you have no idea i mean being on twitter is interesting right you literally i think have no idea which tweet of yours is going to to blow up and like just get a lot of likes and it's sometimes it's totally um isn't that remarkable I, yeah it's I can't, bizarre yeah. there's no i don't think you can ever tell it's like someone who saw it um somebody with lots of followers saw that tweet you know maybe first thing in the morning after a night they had a good a good night's sleep and and a good meal before then and a wonderful date and they came in this um, very good mood and the first tweet they saw was your tweet and they have like 400,000 followers so they liked it and then it just sets off some sort of, of a wave of people who's just oh this guy liked it I like it and you know you have no idea you don't see this tweet as your best yeah. <laughs> twitter work or anything like that and yet it's it's it somehow uh, blows up like that and it can but be the same thing very freeing yeah yeah, it's very and- freeing, right? Because you, you, you recognize that your job then becomes on a work-by-work basis, like expressing it, crafting it as best you can, enjoying it. Uh, and then it's not up to you whether it's good not or bad. Not up to you. It's not up to anyone. I, I don't think anybody could. I mean, look, Gangnam oh, yeah. Style. Who, who could have known? It's just this bizarre phenomenon. Right. And it's like, no, right. uh, you could have no algorithm or, or prediction machine to, to know that this was going to happen. None. I was like, yeah. of course, after that, you start having the, the copycats and they could drive the wave for a little bit. Um, but the, actually, the, the next Gangnam Style has to be something 
as bizarre as Gangnam Style. You you can't know what it is. You can't aim for massive no. popularity. I think. No, I mean, there's certainly uh, a level of strategy to distribution, no doubt. But I think the percentage that we can control um, is so small, and the amount of energy that we give it often. Uh, yes. is, is so large in comparison. But really, actually, you get into trouble where you start thinking about distribution in the creative part and that changes how you create. And this is where everybody gets tied up, right? And where all of the advice that you'll read um, on Masterclass uh, or The Art of Fiction Paris Review will contradict itself. Like, I write with one reader in mind. No. I write with my whole readership in mind. Yes. I don't have anybody in mind. I write for myself, right? So th this is the really interesting one. But, yeah, the, the Twitter experience for me uh, <laughs> has just reinforced that, that um, the job is like the sincere creation and distribution. Uh, you can do some things about it, but if you think you're going to control that and if you think that the distribution of your works will be related to how uh, good they are in your own estimation, um, then you're trapped. <laughs> then you're going to get trapped, for sure. I mean, I still get angry every now and then that this amazing poem that I've written, <laughs> like, falls flat, of course. Like, that's always going to be a frustrating experience. And then you, you tweet something off the cuff with a typo in it and off it goes, right? Um, <laughs> there is a frustra there's a frustration to that for sure. But, but it, I have found that a freeing, a freeing reminder that, uh, that the job of creation is, is, can be distinct, you know? Yeah, and I think if, if I could get in another word about my disillusionment with the meta courses on productivity on creativity about you know right like talking about and meta and selling you products that relate to uh, your ability i think they all pretty much appeal to the side of you that's worried about money about whether it's going to make it about the distribution about um, so a lot of the things you see are actually there and i think you subconsciously think that oh if i paid a hefty amount for this online course by this guy with credentials. I'm somehow going to be imbued with his future success. You know, that's somehow going to be transferred to me as if it at any point guarantees something because we all have insecurities about whether our poems are going to fall flat or, or gain a massive success. And oh. I think a lot of these dreams are, are sold this way. Often these courses are excellent at a particular side of things, right? Uh, that 10 to 20% that is distribution, getting into a right, like a, a good workflow for yourself, et cetera. And, and there is a validity there. But uh, as you say, when we buy them or when we see an ad, we're not buying that 10, 20%. We're buying the 100%, which includes the idea that we're talented and discovered and uh, successful and rich and all of all of the things that the ego wants. Um, yeah, I think that conflation uh, is very natural. I mean, I, you know, on the bookshelf behind me, 
what, 20 or 30 books on writers and how they write and their writing lives. I've read most of the art of fiction columns in the Paris Review. I got to a stage where I did it for enjoyment, not for imitation or emulation, just a curiosity. But at the start, it was a, a trying to figure it out a trying to like get the rubric, you know? So I want to, I want to tie this back to something we, uh, we discussed before. So we got at this point that we say um, the creative force in us is divorced from the part that thinks about let's say material success or any sort of anything like that and we also yes sort of identified them with with the with the different faculties we have one of one of so storytelling in ourselves and and one of rational thought and i think i would say that the creative force is obviously connected to the storytelling faculty and the rational thought is more connected to our hopes of actually making it because we're trying to see is like, okay, I can do this thing all day that I really enjoy, but uh, I'm really scared. It's not going to turn out well, and I'm not going to be able to make a living. All that, mm -hmm. that's the rational part that kind of sometimes can hold you back from, from diving into it and doing the work. And I'm interested to hear from you, where where have all these thoughts taken you like where do you stand when it when it comes to that because it's an understandable tension in everybody's yeah. mind and there's a each each of the each of these faculties is is true and says a truthful thing i think they both are trying to serve us and, and yes, they absolutely. have good intentions yeah. and it's interesting for me to to hear from you how you deal with that yeah i mean it is uh, it has been the central struggle, uh, I would say, balancing these two things for me. That's common. They want different things. Like the creative part doesn't care if what it's making makes money. It cares about feeling. It cares about uh, the moment and experience and transmuting observation into expression. Uh, so reconciling them has been tough. In practice, uh, I followed the write a best-selling novel, uh, get discovered, go through the gatekeepers, get shortlisted for the man booker, and do that fast enough that I don't run out of money and end up in the gutter and torch my relationships uh, and burn out, you know. So that was the model to start with. I, I recognise, thankfully, uh, <laughs> that both the gamble there and the trade-off and then how it doesn't need to be that way anymore because of the tools we have. Um, what I did in practice was I stopped writing my novel when it was at 80,000 words out of about 95,000 and had a go at this uh, children's series of interactive books idea that had been on my mind for, you know, six or seven years um, and so in effect these are uh, unfinished books that parents and kids complete together and in deciding to do that that was very much the rational strategic part of my mind that said okay this is still a big bet but it is a better bet on getting onto this power law curve 
in that you are doing the publishing job, which is upstream from just the creator job. Uh, it is something that is doesn't really run out of an audience if the idea works. It is something where product extension is possible. And so the, the, the primary shift was um, my job first is distribution and distribution and a commercial basis can come from this idea if, if there's a product market fit. And so it was a very distinct switch into that. So this is good and it's looking good. I'm much more comfortable now that I'll be able to have writing as part of my life, not necessarily a full-time job, but that it will be a large part of my life um, and a large part of my work. And that is something, uh, that's sort of a dream come true. That's, that's something I've been working towards for a long time. Uh, by the same, <laughs> at the same time, uh, I have been clawing to write this screenplay idea that has been on my mind for eight years. I really want to write it now. And that would mean not doing my publishing duties for these books when they're getting a great market response where a little bit more effort will really kind of get it, you know, solidified uh, and have it on the right trajectory. And so we've got these two parts still in conflict. On the one, you know, the creative part says you're inspired to write this screenplay now. That's the thing that you would regret not writing the most on the artistic side. Um, screw it, like ride the lighting, lightning and the inspiration and then pick up the pieces afterwards. <laughs> the other side says, come on, man, stick with the plan. You've almost stuck the landing on this thing. Give it another six months and then you'll be able to. So I like how you said that they both are trying to serve you, right? I think that's the right, right way to look at it, uh, not not feeling that one is correct and the other one's incorrect or that, yeah, they're both trying to do good things for your life, uh, but they are in conflict and, and I feel the conflict. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think it's also fair to say that they only happen to be in conflict because of the type of culture we're in or because of the way institutions around us are built. And for myself, I've been trying to entertain the idea that they are uh, brothers or siblings and you know they also have on on a level up uh, a higher level something that connects them both and that i can access and somehow effortlessly as possible oscillate between them if if they're both needed kind of give them give them both airtime in my mind allow yeah. access um it does happen i think that one of them can be too too dominating, right? One of them can be right. too dominant and uh, either stop you from doing anything or or just maybe you're the best you know, painter like Van Gogh or something. you know you can you can make these amazing uh, amazing things, but they don't serve you in the sense that you don't get to to live well doing that. Um, no balance there. And yeah. um, I'm still yeah there's no ultimate solution like you say i'm really happy to hear that that you found a way to to somehow reconcile them as best as possible to create the kind of life that you want and not uh, make compromises that feel painful and i'm trying to do the same and oscillate between them 
healthily. Yeah, it's and it's hard uh, bringing them closer. You know, let's say you're a graphic artist and you do have a sense of like the work you want to create, but to satisfy this this distribution side, or let's call it the rational commercial side that also wants to have a stable life and a place to live and spend time on relationships, et cetera, and free up your time by earning money. Um, you're creating digital art for a, a cigarette company and you don't believe in that, right? The gap between these two things is so large that it's going to be uncomfortable. And so I think my goal has just been to bring them closer and closer. Um, and the ideal, you know, we, well, let's go back to a Tom York or a Prince where they're just making what they feel like making. And perhaps they spend some time thinking about production, but it's not, it's not so far away from, from the thing itself. Um, yeah. 100%, 100%. It shouldn't be a black and white thing, but there's a lot of uh, gray area in between where you can try and bring these things together and closer to one another to a place where even if it's not the that dream, the ideal situation, and yeah. who knows, that could always happen. I mean, when you do yeah. finish your 95,000 words, I hope it does get a Man Booker Prize. Um, <laughs> we'll see. I have no idea whether it's any good. Like, I haven't read it back to myself for five years. Who knows? Uh, maybe <laughs> the creative part of me is over it, right? It, it's just not inspired to write that anymore because... That was five years ago. Um, just on the, I think, you know, what I described in terms of bringing them closer together, that's uh, me. I could never have, I tried to, to just separate them, right? Yeah. And compartmentalize. Yeah. Um, I wasn't able to do it. This is another area where people disagree a lot. Um, and I think people are different in this regard where uh, a lot of people very happily have a day job um, that they don't have any artistic feeling for, but it serves that purpose. Uh, it's within that box and it frees them up to create art and they enjoy the art when they have the time for it. You know, so I, I do think there are different types there. And if we're talking about gambling and, and the, the chances of things, the chance that you won't have to sacrifice a lot of other important values in service of creating um, the day job, one is the safer one. There's no doubt about it. True. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think just as it happened for me, uh, uniting my vocation and that vocation um, was the only sort of way I could do it to date. Um, let's hope, yeah, stick to landing. Yes. And um, that's the point of the podcast here is not to bring any solutions to any problem. So we just... <laughs> Not, not there yet, but maybe we, we paved a, a little bit of the way forward. Um, Rick, at this point, I'd love to hear from you um, if you want to add anything and also uh, inform us of where anyone can find you personally, if it's Twitter and what you do, your work, your projects. I would love to hear that. Yeah, sure. I want to I wanna go back to the top. So what's the difference... For you, like in being a tour guide, right? Mm -hmm. ha have you noticed anything in particular around 
the type of tourist who is in stuck in this story about their life. They may as well still be in Germany uh, complaining about that there's no food from Turingen, like there, the negative guy from my story, versus someone who's open to experience and, and yeah. Yeah, right. That's that's fallen by the wayside. You asked it earlier. Um, it's interesting. I think generally the world is becoming more well planned in terms like people know already when they're going to spend their nights and it's important to them. So the moment I hear from a tourist, I mean, it's so natural, like it's not weird. It's not there's nothing wrong about it. But I remember times when also I was around the age you're describing, like 23, 24, at 17, I flew uh for a month to the country of georgia and mm -hmm. i had no idea i had no plan it was just me and this friend you know and it seemed to um again if to come back to the metaphor of, of shaking the snow globe that was like a stronger shake um, than yeah. having everything planned out in terms of hotels and yeah. making sure that everything will be clean and sterile and i think the world is going in the direction of of sterility and and having things well planned out. And that's something I noticed as a tour guide that already some of the magic is, is maybe not so much there. Although I wasn't really working with the 20 something year olds because maybe they're, they're still a little bit more, more adventurous in this sense. But I did notice that if anything, that's an observation about how you grow up and you become less adventurous, right? Um, so in right. general, I think people are tending to become yeah less adventurous let's say and and mm. and by that i mean that they they stand a, a worse chance of discovering new things so that relates to your story and mm. in terms of of individuals that have met yeah definitely you can see a whole range of people and um, to the type of person that i am i'm definitely if it's somebody who's open for adventure like i'm i'm really happy because I'm yeah. all about intuitively doing things and kind of figuring things out on the way. And because I know it leaves open, it leaves room for, for opportunities, for adventures, for the things you really remember when you go back. And I think that the people that are looking at the watch, if you've come to pick them up at just the right time, or if we're going to make it or, Oh no, this place is closed, you know? So in general, their reaction to, unplanned situation says says a lot about people i think some people yeah. would come to a place that just closed a few minutes before and they would be like oh that's not so bad now we have time to go to this other place which we uh, in the beginning also wanted to see and couldn't do it because the itinerary was this way and some people are just going to to be uh, moaning about it and i'm just like for days yeah 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 and just going back and uh, everything is ruined and i mean luckily i didn't have this type of thing so <laughs> i didn't get a a review from from someone like that it, it, this is like an extreme situation but there's mm -hmm. definitely people who are, are more persnickety about things and and are generally not as adventurous and and happy to embrace change and surprise so yeah. yeah it's something i noticed well interesting i mean you know i'm with you i i am getting older uh the adventurousness is constricted just by you know life and yes. a two-year-old and and that's okay uh and there's you know there's beauty to that but 
yeah being open to to the uncertain and feeling feeling comfortable enough to feel uncomfortable let's say is is a big thing um that's what uh, all the unlearning is actually aimed at i think yeah me yeah um yeah i mean so in terms of my stuff well i am spending time on twitter now uh that's been a beautiful surprise actually uh in the last six months um so rick benger r-i-c-k-b-e-n-g-e-r you'll find me there and that'll have links to my other stuff so once upon a pancake is these interactive books for kids um got some big plans there and as for the this uh screenplay tbd but yeah on twitter is where where i'm hanging out at the moment Nice. That's great. And for anybody listening, please know that uh, Rick is much more than what you've just heard. And I know we haven't even got to cover some of the topics we, we had in mind before. So I'm really looking forward to do that either privately or on another podcast. I'd love to do that, Rick. And thank you so much for, for being here and um, sharing with us your thoughts and feelings. Absolutely. would love to do it again. And um... You gave me lots to lots to think about. I enjoyed it a lot. That's my job. <laughs> Thank you. Bye bye.